Welcome to Sliding Doors, the podcast that delves into the decisions and moments that shape our lives. I am Jenny Becker, and throughout my life, career and relationships, I've always been fascinated with the notion that everything happens for a reason, alongside my love for the 90s movie classic, Sliding Doors. Have you ever really thought about those moments that shaped your life? Those decisions that could have gone either way in the opportunities presented to you? What if you had taken that job? or told that person in high school how much you liked them. Each episode, I will talk to some amazing people from all walks of life and chat about their sliding doors moments. We will reflect on how a decisional moment changed the course of their lives and how things might have looked if they had never happened. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. My guest today is Peter James. Peter is a UK number one best-selling author, best known for his Detective Superintendent Roy Grace series, now a hit ITV drama Grace, and writing 19 consecutive Sunday Times number one bestsellers. Born in Brighton, Peter attended Ravensbourne Film School and subsequently spent several years in North America working as a screenwriter and film producer. Much loved by crime and thriller fans for his fast-paced page turners, full of unexpected plot twists and sinister characters, he has won over 40 awards for his work, including the WH Smith Best Crime Author of All Time Award and Crime Writers Association Diamond Dagger. Peter has written over 36 novels and sold 21 million copies worldwide, and six have been adapted for the stage, taking over £50 million at the box office, the most recent being Wish You Were Dead. 
As someone who has written some of the most loved novels worldwide, I cannot wait to find out all about his life and the moments and decisions that have made it so far. So welcome to Sliding Doors, Peter. Thank you, Jenny. Great to be here. Wow, what an impressive um, introduction of things that you've done. Um, it's brilliant to meet you and I'm so excited to chat to you. And people can't see, but Peter has an amazing display of police memorabilia behind him of all these amazing mannequin heads wearing brilliant caps. So you've got a brilliant background. Um, so you've had the most impressive career, 19 consecutive number one bestsellers. Do you find that it gets easier when you hear that, when you write novels, or is it harder because the pressure's on? You know, it gets harder. <laughs> um, I guess I have more confidence. Yeah. So that, in that sense, it's good. But when I was a kid, and I was an avid reader, and a lot of my favorite authors, like Alistair MacLean, it seemed to me that the more successful they got, the lazier their books got, mm, and, and the less thrilling. And I kind of made a promise to myself, and I never ever in my remotest dreams believed I would ever be a successful author in, in any way mm -hmm. but I made a promise that if I ever did have any success the one thing I would do I'd try to, would be trying to raise the bar on every book yeah and, um, and so from that sense I, I am under pressure with every new book so I think I want to make this better than the last one yeah and that's a lot of pressure that's because that's a 19 that's a lot of number one books and do you how, I mean, this must be a question that you get asked quite a lot, but what is your process when it comes to writing them? When you're really kind of, you know, you've just had a bestseller, you've got to sit down, write the next one. What, do you have a, a process that you follow or does it, how does it, how do these stories come to you? Yeah, the stories can come literally from anywhere out of complete left field, something I read in the newspaper. I mean, my new, new book, Stop Them Dead, which is coming out in September, um, I read a newspaper article in the local paper in Brighton where Roy Grace novels are set. And it yeah. was a lady who had been walking in a park and had been mugged for her, her dog. Uh -huh. Her dog was stolen. And I thought, what? And I delved into it. And I, I had a meeting with the, the chief constable of Sussex. And I said, dog? People being mugged for their dog. She said, organized crime gangs ever since lockdown started found they could actually make more money out of the black market and dogs, yeah. drugs, and with, with ridiculously short sentences. You know, it might even not get a custodial sentence at all if caught. And lockdown led to this massive boom in dogs. And that was how the idea for Stop Them Dead came amazing. about. Amazing, amazing. And do you ever, do you ever get, I mean, I'm sure you do get writer's book, but does it ever, do you ever find it hard to get these ideas? Or do you kind of, when you get an idea, do you know that's what's going to work? Does it kind of just click with you? Yeah, I, it's an interesting question about writer's block. I'm not, I don't, I'm not a believer in writer's block. I, if, if anybody tells them they've got writer's block, the first question I say to them is, do you know the ending of your book? And yeah. they go, no. And I say, well, would you get in the car and start driving if you didn't know where you're going? Ah, so you always know the ending of your books. Yeah, the first thing I, is, where's the book going to go to? Yeah. It, it may change. Half the time that I'm writing, I think I come up with a better idea. But I do find that kind of ideas find me. I mean, the, the book I'm writing yeah. right now is a, an old friend of mine came up to me at a funeral six months ago. And he just, he said, There's, I've got a story you're going to want to write. Oh, I bet it. people do that all the time to you. Every two weeks. And I said, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally have to write this. Amazing. So it can be, literally, it can be anything. Uh, it can be something a cop tells me when I'm out doing research. Um, and occasionally just an idea pops in my head. Um, the picture you dead, which is the one that's been out in paperback for currently and, and will be for the rest of this year. I mean, that came 
from an art forger I met. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just said, could you forge a picture so well, even the world's... I've always loved the painter Fragonard, and I just said to this forger, David Henty, I said, could you forge a Fragonard so well that even the world's number one authority on Fragonard could not tell it was a forgery? And he said, absolutely. Wow. Tell me how we'd do it. And, and I thought, wow. I've always loved car boot sales. Interesting, um, yeah. My wife and I go very often yeah, to a Sunday car boot sale. And, and, yeah, I think all of us go to a car boot sale and we think... Maybe maybe we'll just pick up some nugget that. Oh yeah, the one that the one that you're going to get that you take to Antiques Roadshow that's going to be the you know yeah. tens of thousands of pounds. Yeah, and I'm an Antiques Roadshow addict, and I oh. just thought, what if a, a couple go to a car boot sale and they find a painting and there's, it's just a horrible picture, but they love the frame and they take it home and they realise there's something underneath that could be Amazing. amazing. And they take it to Antiques Roadshow. Yeah, I mean, it's such a beautiful thing being an author because I can just, it must just be so amazing to be able to imagine these stories, but then write them as if they almost kind of become real in your mind. And I think I know the answer to this question from your background and collection of police memorabilia, but has crime and kind of thrillers always been an interest to you throughout your life? In a way, yes. Um, Although I, I never thought I'd actually write crime novels really? i um i always thought there were far too many people in that space um and what happened to me was i i'd always from the age of seven wanted to be a writer but but never ever dreamed that i that i that I'd be able to make a living at it and when i was 14 i read graham green's novel brighton rock mm-hmm. and i was a kid you know growing up in brighton and i put that book down and i thought wow and I, and I made a kind of promise to myself that one day I would try and write a crime novel set in Brighton that was maybe 10% as good as that book. Amazing. I mean, you've done a lot more than that. Thank you. Yeah, incredible. But I, I, the, the, it wasn't that. It wasn't how I started writing. I, I, I thought, you know what, there's far too many people so successful in the crime fraternity. It's obviously, you know, Conan Doyle, Agatha Christie, and then the more modern crime writers when, when I was a kind of youngster. So my first, first, I desperately wanted to be an author, and I read an article when I was like 27. There was a shortage of spy thrillers. Ian Fleming had died. So I thought I could write a spy thriller. And so I did, and I wrote this novel called Dead Letter Drop. And to my amazement, it got me an agent. And my, even my bigger amazement, it got published. Yeah. To my even bigger amazement still, it didn't sell. <laughs> <laughs> the best day of my life was when my agent rang me I said, your book's been accepted. I think well, the worst day of my life was the publication day, and I ran around all the bookshops, and it wasn't anywhere. Oh, the high I, and the low. My publishers have published, I think they printed 1,800 copies, and of which 1,600 went to libraries. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and yeah, W.H. Smith bought it, and I love them forever for it, but they only bought 30 copies nationwide. And I, anyway, I had a two-book deal, and they published a second book by Thurow, and that did even worse. And I, I, I was writing a third one for them, and I poured my heart out to a friend of my then sister-in-law who worked for Penguin. And she said, darling, why on earth are you writing Spice for us? Oh, yeah, this is one of your Slime Dolls moments, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, sorry, have I got yeah. that? No, 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 we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk more about that because it's a really good story and I don't want to go. But it's it's really interesting because, you know, it really shows that, you know, when people see successful 
authors, writers, anyone, they, they believe that they've just been successful their whole lives. But actually, as you say, you know, you got your book deal, but then your first book kind of didn't do very well. And I think, you know, when you, when you look back at kind of being younger, you said then that you kind of did want to be an author from when you were seven. Has that always been, you know, just part of your plan? Is, is was it, was there ever anything else you wanted to be or when you were younger, was it always writing? Yeah, I wanted to do three things in life, from, literally from, I guess, about the age of seven, eight, nine, which was to, to write books, make movies, and race cars. <laughs> and have <laughs> you done my, it all? I have. Amazing. So, not, 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 the racing, not so greatly successful, but I love it. And, and yeah. making the movies, they weren't that great. Uh, one or two I'm proud of, but writing is what I really love. But I, I, I never had any confidence as a kid, and I... Mm-hmm. And I I mean, I never thought I'd have the whatever it took to be a successful author. And I remember when I was about 12 and I'd just delivered an essay to my English teacher. And I sat in class and, and we were having to read a, a novel. I can't remember. It had like 450 pages. And I thought, I have struggled for like five days to write this three-page essay. How on earth <laughs> could somebody write a 500-page novel? I mean, how? Uh, and... The, what happened for me was the, I, I got lucky. I had this one teacher at Charterhouse called David Sumscale. He went on to become the headmaster of Westminster. And he believed in me and he encouraged yeah. me. And I, I won the school poetry prize a couple of years later. Uh, my dad, who knew that I, I, I so wanted to write, got me the best birthday present of my life. Uh, I didn't necessarily think it was at the time. Yeah. He got me a portable electric typewriter. And a battle axe of a, of a teacher to teach the touch type. And she would, in school holiday, school holiday, she'd stand over my shoulder and she'd cover all the keypads up with sticky pads so I couldn't see them. And if I looked down, she'd go, Don't look! And she'd oh sort of my gosh. Out of sheer terror, I learned to type yeah. 70 words a minute. And it stood me in terrific stead ever since. Oh, that's brilliant. I love hearing when people have had, you know, visions all through their life. And that's always been their North Star, as you said, like the destination of where they want to go to and whether you've made it, you know, as a big success, you've done all of those things. And it's an amazing thing to be able to look back and recognize that those are your dreams as a child. And when you do look back at your career so far, what would you say is your proudest moment? I think um, the first time I got to number one, Mm-hmm. Um, that that was amazing. I remember my edit, editor, he always rings me the, the week after the book comes out, and he was squealing with delight down the phone, just saying, you're number one, you're number one. And I thought, do you know something that something nobody could ever take away? It's yeah. there. Uh, that was amazing. I, I used to dream. When I, when I first wrote and had my first book published, I dreamt that one day I might have one day in the top 10 at number 10 and I, yeah. I would die happy. And I used to dream also that one day I'd see a copy of one of my books in an airport bookshop. There's I know, a, yeah. And I guess also winning the Crime Writers Association Diamond Dagger, that, that, was, mm-hmm. that was amazing because that's voted by your peers. And so that was, that was another really proud moment. But that, that number one is something that, and I still get a thrill. I, I, it's still, that thrill is still just as strong. 
But that's what's so nice, isn't it? Because to be able to remember that feeling and kind of and capture it every time you you do. I mean, you got to number one a lot more than once, but it's it's nice that you still remember that because those are the moments that kind of make us and that make us kind of appreciate everything we've got and where we've come. And I did find out another fact about you, and I'm not sure if this is true, but were you a former glove maker to the Queen? My well, my family, my my mother was the Queen's glove maker. Ah, amazing. She, um, came to England in 1938 as a, a Jewish refugee. Yeah. She'd been studying fashion design at Vienna Art College, and she worked during the war. She met my dad right at the beginning of the war, and she would have, she was about to be shipped to Canada, as, as all the kind of mm-hmm. refugees were. And she, uh, they married, and she stayed, and she worked with wounded soldiers, teaching them to make gloves just to get their fingers working. Oh. And at the end of the war, she realized that there were no nice colors around, is all drab demobs. Yeah. And she dyed a range of gloves in a hundred shades of colour. And Vogue spotted it and they called her the Colour Queen of England. And, and the next thing is she got asked by Norman Hartnell to make the going away gloves when the Queen then Queen Elizabeth yeah. uh, Elizabeth got married. And from that point onwards she made pretty much all the Queen's gloves all the Queen's life and the Queen Mother and got a royal warrant. And for a long time I held the warrant because they always give it to the youngest member of the family. Okay, there <laughs> we keep go. It going if somebody dies. Yeah. And I have one connection. This is my one connection with Shakespeare. Shakespeare's father was a glove maker. Really? <laughs> there you go. It's in it's in the blood. Clearly, clearly. In the blood. The, what an amazing story. I mean, that's a sliding dolls moment in itself with your mum saying that, you know, she nearly got, you know, shipped off and, and never would have stayed here. And what a lovely story of an amazing thing for your mum to have gone through and now for you to kind of kind of carry that on completely and she was she was a great character and she was I, I guess one of my saddest moments is my mother she lived she was she did live to see me published but mm-hmm. she died in 99 before the Roy, first Roy Grace books came out so before uh-huh. my real success and she was the most fantastic character she was her name was Cornelia James and she if you sat on a plane with her yeah. or a train next to her by the time you got off the first thing you would do you would find the nearest bookshop <laughs> by a Peter James book <laughs> those are the best mothers she there was are, the best salesperson on there the are book. best PR aren't they oh what a brilliant story and I'm sure she's looking down at you very very proud and knows all of your success and going on to, just before we talk about your moments I wanted to ask you what do you believe in when it comes to the theory of sliding doors so the idea that everything happens for a reason timing fate coincidence what are your beliefs I great believe that there is a lot more that goes on that we're aware of I think we regard the brain as the seat of our consciousness and I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. sure that it is at all I think the brain is mission controlled it, it it runs our body. But I think that I've had so many experiences from telepathy. Um, we had a, I lived in a haunted house and nobody's going to tell me that ghosts don't exist. I saw this ghost and, and wow. so many people there. There is so much more that we are not aware of. And I, and I think, uh, I mean, we'll come on to it, but you know, my wife and I met on a sliding doors moment, but she firmly mm. believes that we would have met some other way. Really? If, if that hadn't happened. And I, and I think you were asking me a little bit about how I get ideas. And I, and I do think, and it, it may sound weird, but I think stories find authors mm-hmm. very often. And, and I don't know what it is, something out in the ether. Um, and, and, and also you so often find that somebody will work 
for several years on a book, say, a biography of Dickens. And the week that comes out, there's another biography of Dickens. You know, mm-hmm. it's been, there's, there's stuff that's going on in the ether all the time that we're plugged into but not necessarily aware of. You know, I, I, was a, I was very fond of Jung and, and his whole theories about the collective unconscious. Yeah. It's an amazing outlook, actually, what you say. And I, I like the idea of like stories find you. And I agree with you. There's definitely something more than just us. And another time I want to hear all about this haunted house that you lived in, because I want to hear oh, all about the too. ghosts. I, I'm not, and I wrote a non-Roy Grace novel, which came out about six years ago called Absolute Proof, which took me 29 years to write. And that was all a, a thriller about, about what would happen if somebody could conclusively prove that God existed. And the research took me to meeting, you know, all kinds of academics, really super intelligent people who had faith and and the, and the smart agnostics and atheists yeah. too. But in the course of writing that book, I, I realised there is there is a bigger picture. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about a guy sitting on a cloud with a flowing mm-hmm. beard, but to, to think this is all there is is, I think, is very narrow. I totally agree. Parallel universes, the multiverse, everything. So let's go on to talking about your first sliding doors moment. So um, you say, I was living in Canada and working as a gopher. And one day the producer came to me in a panic and said, the writer's sick. He hasn't delivered the script for today's filming. I read your CV and saw you won your school's poetry prize. Could you write for the show today for us? They were so pleased. They commissioned me to write three a week for the next year. And this was my first break. So um, I've condensed that a bit because I want you to explain a bit more. But this moment really stands out to me because I think it's so important about the small things like putting something on your cv that can kind of really lead to like the bigger things in your life um so explain what happened and why this was such a sliding doors moment for you in my late teens after my dad had given me the typewriter i wrote three novels i wrote the great british novel mm-hmm. luckily nobody else thought it was yeah. <laughs> um but it got me an agent in new york um, I, I, I got, it turned, everyone turned it down in England. They got me an agent in New York, a guy called Kurt Helmer. And I, and I, I remember going to see him. He's a really nice guy. I picked him out of the, the, the Writers and Artists Yearbook because he had one of the biggest entries. <laughs> and he said, you know, he wanted me to work on this book. But it had been a year and a half doing the rounds, and I'd written a second book, which I proudly gave to him. And he read it. He said, no, no, let's go back to the first one. Um, but during that time, I'd written a third book. And he said, no, let's go back to the first one. And anyhow, then I got this job. I, I went to film school and I came out of film school. This was 1970. And it was impossible to get a job in England at that mm. time. Um, BBC, you had to join a graduate scheme six years. ITV, you had to be born into a union family. It was very much a closed shop. And the film business was down the Kazi. And I had, my mother had a brilliant brother in living Canada, really smart guy and he said come out here it's all happening so i went out and i got this job with channel 19 and yeah. they made this daily program for preschool children called polka.door it went out at 7 45 in the morning and i got a job as a gopher on it and i you know i literally go for this go for that i made the tea and i ran the errands and i'd been on it about three months and as you said, the, the producer came in a panic one day and he said, the writer's sake, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't, he didn't bring a script in this morning. Uh, he said, I read your CV. You, um, uh, you won your school poetry prize. Could, could you write the show? And they stuck me in a corner with an IBM golf ball selectric typewriter. 
And I'm thinking, okay, well, I, t- I, I was trying to think of all the children's. Right? Was, the show was five, sort of five p- bolshy puppets. Yeah. <laughs> Went through a polka dot hole door, polka oh dot hole in a wall, and did stuff for kids that puppets do. Like, this is the church, that's the steeple, open it up. Oh, yeah, okay. So I, I kind of I wrote the show. Um, the producer really liked it. And they, they commissioned me to write it three days a week for, for the next year. And so I, I wrote to my agent uh, and I said, it's great. I got this tremendous gig. You know, it was big money. I think I was earning about you know, 25000 for that year. Yeah. Back in 1971 for a 22-year-old. Amazing. Uh, um, and he wrote back and he said, you asshole. <laughs> you want to be an author you really think you're going to write children's television all day and then go home and write a novel he said go work in a library or a factory you're never going to write a novel working for television and do you know something he was actually right it wasn't until I quit working in film and television the first time around and, and, and got involved in my family business that I did write my first novel but at the time, I thought, oh, he's, he's completely wrong. And how did, so if it didn't kind of propel you into writing your novel, how did getting that break change things for you? So there must have been some things that kind of, you know, if you hadn't have got that break, things would never have been the same for you. So what was it about that kind of opportunity that you got that changed your life? I think the most important thing that, that it, it gave me the the understanding and, and also, I guess, the, the ability to not fear deadlines because mm-hmm. I had to turn up three days a week with the script. You know, it, didn't, it didn't matter if I'd been sick, I flew, whatever. If I, I knew that if I didn't do that, I'd, I'd lose the gig. And so, so it's, it's taught me the importance of writing to deadlines. You know, and, 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 and I, I still have that with me today because I, I write a Roy Grace novel a year. Yeah, um, I don't have an option to, to write one yeah. yeah. months or two years. Apart from the fact my fans would be really annoyed, I lose all the great spaces I have in the bookstores. Yeah, but you know, it, writing it, it taught me that I suppose at one level writing is a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to be consistent. You know, if, if you want to make a living as an author, you can't write one novel and then write another one ten years time, unless that novel's been so phenomenal. Yeah. Um, so it, it taught me the importance of continuity in writing and actually like you can learn transferable skills in lots of different jobs and yes as you say your agent was probably right you weren't in the right space but you got a really good foundation for your future life in writing and would you say it also kind of taught you to put yourself out there because I can imagine if someone came up to me and just asked me to write a script I'd be I'd be like I can't do that I'm not a writer what should I do but Actually, you put yourself out there in a situation, the opportunity came your way. So did it kind of teach you just to throw yourself into opportunities when they're given to you? Completely, completely. I, I, I had, a, had a big lesson when I, when I was at film school and I, and I was trying to, I, I needed to earn some money because I wanted to take this very posh girl out to dinner. <laughs> and, and my dad gave me just enough money for my, my rent. I shared a garage with this fellow student in Fulham. Yeah, uh, rent, fuel, and food, and that was it. And I wanted to take her out to a restaurant in London, and I saw an advert for a cleaning lady wanted, well, cleaner wanted, and it was Mrs. Wells. And, and I went round the court. I went, I went straight there. It was just off the Fulham Road, and it's very. It was a nice, elegant house. It wasn't a grand, grand house. And a very smart lady called Mrs. Wells. She said, "Really, I was expecting a lady." 
I said, I can clean. I said, really? Anyway, she, she took, long story short, she took me on trial basis, uh, 10 shillings an hour, like doing three mornings a week for three hours. And the first day I started work, I was on my knees cleaning the skirting board in the hallway, and suddenly all this mail just fell through the letterbox, all addressed to Orson Welles. Oh, my God. Uh, I'm not always the sharpest tack in the box. I thought, idiot postman, he's delivered it to the wrong Mrs. Wells. Yeah. And I was just scooping it up, and the door opened, and, and in walked Orson Welles. Oh Long my God. coat, big hat. And he looked down at me like I was something the cat had dropped. <laughs> and I looked up at him, and I was just... Jaw <laughs> drop. I was totally... I wanted to say to him, oh, Mr. Wells, I'm, I'm at film school. I'm trying to get in the movie. Yeah, like, tell him everything. And I'm going... Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> and he stepped over me. He said, good morning. <laughs> Went up the stairs and, um, and was gone. I was so excited. And I go back two days later and I prepared exactly what I'm going to say to him. And his wife told me he's gone off to America for three months to make a movie. Oh, no. And I, that was... And I, 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 you know, after that, I always thought, don't ever pass up an opportunity. It's so true. What that's an amazing coincidence as well that that's where you you ended up being. But yeah, you're right. And I think this story is a really good inspiration for people that you know do want to be an author or do have a vision of where they want to go. That you're never going to get that place as the first thing that you do. You can learn so much that you can take to other opportunities that you get along the way. And I wanted to ask you the what if. So we love asking the what if on this podcast because it's all about those sliding doors moments. So what if that writer hadn't have been sick that day? Um, you know, ones if you'd not put your poetry prize in your CV, do you think about how different things would have been for you? Because you wouldn't have ended up being a writer there. You would have maybe stayed a gopher longer or what, what do you think would have happened? It's a, it's a great question. I, I often think also what if I'd never ultimately had any success in writing and what what happened after 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 that i um ended up making film and some television for quite a period of time my father was became really ill uh, i had the family business of Cornelius making gloves but also making ties and we diversified into other accessories and, and he had a triple bypass and they were going to sell the business unless i went into it and i thought mm, you know what I, you know, I've got no prospects of making it as a writer. I've got fairly dubious background as a movie maker. Maybe I should go into the business and at least, you know, I'll make a decent living. So I went into the family business and I really did think this was going to be my future. Yeah, well, it definitely wasn't. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you. 
We'll go into your second sliding doors moment because this is this is one of the big ones for you and your career. So in 1981, my wife and I got burgled. A young Brighton detective came to take fingerprints and saw my first novel. He said if I ever wanted research help with the police to give him a call, and that's how it all started. So I've condensed this moment massively because I want you to explain how this all came to be. Um, and this was after your first spy thriller had been published. Um, and there's a moment, as you say, you're at a party talking to somebody um, who works for So explain how this was a sliding doors moment for you and exactly what happened. So I, I had my first spy thr- first two spy thrillers out, Dead Letter Drop and Atom Bomb Angel. I'm only saying the titles to make sure nobody ever buys them. <laughs> you never and know. I, I was at the party and there was, there was a lady called Elizabeth Buchan. She's now a very well-known author herself. At that time, she was working for Penguin. And she, she was a great friend of my sister-in-law. And she said, darling, why are you writing spy thrillers? She said, people who write, people who read are intelligent by the fact they're reading. And people, when they read, they want to learn something. They just want a story. They want to learn something about the world, about, about the world that the, author, the author's created in that, in that novel. What can you ever know about the world of spies? You're up against some people like John le Carre who've come out in security services. You'll never succeed as a writer unless you write something that, A, you are passionate about, mm-hmm. and B, that you can access and research because that's what people love as the subtext for the novel. And anyway, about a week later, literally a week later, we got burgled. And we were living in the centre of Brighton then, and a young detective called Mike Harris came to the house. And he saw my first two books, and he said, oh, he said, you're a writer. I said, yeah. I said, if you ever want any research help with the police, give me a call. And he was married to a detective called Renata, uh, my mm-hmm. then wife, Georgina, was a lawyer. And we became friends with them. I mean, obviously, I, I made a, an effort to cultivate it. I thought, yeah. wow, this is really interesting. And that summer, they invited us to a barbecue, and there were 12 of their friends at their house, all cops. There was response, traffic, homicide, soccer, neighborhood policing, child protection. And I thought, just talking to them, I thought, wow, nobody sees more of human life in a 30-year career than a police officer. And I thought, this is what I want to write. Did you feel the spark kind of light in your brain? I just knew this was my world. This is what I wanted to do. And and over the next two or three years, when they realized I was genuinely interested, not just out to get a story I could flog at a local paper, they started taking me into their confidence. And they'd say, oh, we're going on a, come, come and spend a day in a response car with us. Uh, and it got to a point where they'd, they, they started smuggling me into the crime scenes. Uh, and, and they'd throw me out and say, we're doing a raid tomorrow on a block of flats. Do <laughs> you want to come with us? Wow. Uh, yes. Yeah. And, and I sort of, over the course of the second half of the 1980s, I just became part of the furniture of Sussex Police. So they, they, it's almost like part of the family. They, everyone realized that actually I was, and I started putting police officers into my books. Mm-hmm. portraying them in a positive light and they really like that yeah and that sort of went on through my my, my novels that followed into the 90s and, and then in um 1997 uh one of my kind of friends in the police said oh, there's a quite a quirky detective i think you'd like uh, called dave gayler and i remember going into dave's office and i've never seen an office so untidy in my life <laughs> i was, can imagine it was just piles of blue and green plastic crates bulging with manila folders and this balding dome just sitting at the very back. 
And I said to him, oh, are you moving? He said, no. He said, um, he said I'm not. He said, what, what, I'm a homicide detective. He said, and I'm, but in addition to my current caseload, I've been put in charge of reopening all the cases in Sussex that have been unsolved, where there's still somebody alive who could benefit from the investigation or wow. the chance yeah. of catching an offender. He said, I'm the last... He said, each one of these boxes is the principal case file of an unsolved murder. I am the last chance the victim has for justice and the family has for closure. And I loved that human image. And he said, what are you writing at the moment? And I was writing at that time a psychological thriller called Denial. He said, tell me about it. So I started telling him. He said, hang on a sec. Why haven't you got a detective looking into this? And I don't think your character would have done this. Wouldn't she have done that? And do you, don't you think he'd have said that? And I thought, this guy yeah. is not wooden top plot. This is a seriously smart guy. And I learned something from him right then and there. I realized what makes a good detective. Unlike so many we see on television, other than John Simmers Grace, who is yeah. perfect, is that so often they seem bullshit on television, but actually a good detective, probably the most important quality is to have a high level of emotional intelligence. Um, and they're really blue sky, out-of-the-box thinkers, at the same yeah. time very methodical. So mm -hmm. half of them, half their job is being incredibly anal, piecing together hundreds of, of a little puzzle. The other half is actually real creative thinking and empathy, bonding with the victims, learning what they can. And we became friends. And over the next four years, Dave got promoted higher and higher. Chile became detective chief superintendent, effectively head of major crime for Sussex. Mm -hmm. And in 2002, my publishers said to me, had I ever thought of creating a detective as a central character? So I went to Dave. I said, would you like to be a fictional cop? And he absolutely <laughs> loved it. Um, he is my real life Roy Grace. He's like my best friend today. Uh, when we got married, he was uh, one of our best men. And we worked together very closely on, on every book. And all that would not have happened, I think, if we hadn't been burgled. What an incredible story. I, I, I've been hooked every second of you telling that. Um, so there's so many what if moments in that, because actually, as you say, the first one is the first one is actually the fact that, you know, you you'd been speaking to this woman at a party, as you say, the, and you, you know, you, you, the seed had been planted slightly that you needed to look for something different. And it's just all a moment of fate and timing because the fact that the burglary then happened the week later, the fact that that policeman came round and kind of picked out your book, there's all these like tiny little things that because, you know, you didn't just kind of follow him. As you say, you got swept into the whole world and got taken on board. And it's a really interesting story because I didn't realize it would have lasted, you know, over a couple of years. You didn't just meet him here one case and whatever. You became, as you said, part of the furniture. Um, and do you remember, the kind of the moment that you know when you did create Roy Grace because obviously it was based on your friend and it's amazing that you're still friends now but do you remember did it feel like oh this has been the missing piece for this this is the continuity throughout the books that I need yes I, I do it's funny enough I um I wrote the first Roy Grace novel and I created Grace and I had gone on holiday to, it was over New Year, and we'd gone to the Caribbean to an island called Caniwan. And um, I'd gone with a, with, a, with a kind of girlfriend at that time. And 
we were co- and I, I was working on the book, and she said, she read it too, and she said, there's something missing in his character. And I said, what? She said, I don't know. She said, it needs a dimension. And I just spent about, I don't know, two days just sitting staring at the sea. And I thought, you know, what is it? What, what is missing is that every, almost every detective novel writer tends to have a stereotype of, 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 the, of the detective with a drink problem and a, and a broken mm-hmm. marriage. The reality is that in today's policing, which I knew well at that point, that no police officer with a, with a drink problem would last 24 hours. Exactly. And I thought, what, you know, what detectives do more than anything else is they solve puzzles. What about if I gave Roy Grace a puzzle of his own he could not solve, his missing wife, Sandy? Mm-hmm. And that was, the, that was it. I, I then put his missing wife in, and the whole book just seemed to come, come alive in yeah. my hands. And come into you. And how did kind of creating Roy Grace change your life? Like, you know, how has, I mean, obviously it's been into a big TV hit series, but how did that character and kind of everything that you created for him change your life? I think um, up until Grace, I'd been, although I was writing and I had some successful books and was able to to make a a living, um, I was not making, you know, I wasn't, wasn't you know I wasn't making a lot of money I wasn't sort of and I wasn't a secure living at all so I was still I'd, I'd gone back into film and television and I had a development company at that time but from the moment that kind of Roy Grace happened that when the first book Dead Simple came out um, I had to drop everything else and, and, and just concentrate and I always remember it so I was having breakfast with an American producer called Steve Haft just after Dead Simple had come out and uh, and Steve's done some big stuff. I think he's done a big movie with Sharon Stone and stuff. And he said, why are you in this shitty movie business still? You don't need it. Just, just You've got the dream writing. Just get on with it. Yeah. What a brilliant moment. It's so great. And, you know, the big question is, what if? What if you'd not been burgled? What if that detective hadn't come around that day? How different do you think things would have been for you? I think it could have been very different. I think, um, you know, we... we for instance, with the police, you know, we kind of tend to look at the police as us and them. In the same way that they do, you know, they, they see themselves as police and civilians. Mm-hmm. And, and it is quite, a lot of people say to me, you know, how, okay, you've got this relationship with police, how do I do that? And I'm joking, I say, we'll get burgled. You know? Yeah. But it's, I, I don't know, I think maybe I, I'm very determined and I think, Maybe I'd have found a way in, but I don't know that I would have found such a receptive way in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's what helped. I think in life, well, if, it, if it, one of the lessons I really have learned is take the opportunities, but also, um, you know, if, if if you're positive with people, they'll be positive back to you. Mm-hmm. It was a definite meant to be moment. Now, on to your third moment, which I am ex- really excited to talk about, which you've mentioned briefly, but in 2013, meeting my future wife, Lara, on a ski lift in Courcheval. So, um, 
You said you got chatting and it turned out that her mother had been to one of your talks just weeks before and bought one of your books for her dad. Um, and you say if you'd have gone on one gondola earlier or later, you might have never met. This is just like sliding doors dreams to me. So this is a really big moment about fate, timing. So take us back to that holiday and explain exactly what happened. Right. So I, I've, I've, for years, I've got, used to go, always go skiing with this great mate of mine called Rob Campson. Mm-hmm. And we um, don't often see each other. So skiing, we always, there's a time we catch up and we sort of kibitz around and tell each other loads of jokes and put on silly accents. We do a lot of goon imitations. And we always get in the gondola, we sing the Yin Kong song. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and we were skiing in Korshaw. It was at a time I, I'd been with my, my partner for a long time, but it was we were kind of on, on the verge of kind of parting. And we got in this sort of six-man gondola, eight-man gondola in Courchevel. And it was the second, there's like two stages. And we, we, just, we got in and just as we were, the walls were about to close and we're thinking, great, we've got it on our own, we can mess up, fool around. These four people bundle in. There's this girl and three guys. Well, that's real sliding doors then, just yeah, as the doors are about to shut. Yeah. We're about to slide shut. Yeah. And she sat opposite me and Lara, and I had a very fancy ski helmet, sort of mm-hmm. leather and chrome. And she looked at me and she just said, I couldn't see, I could only see the bottom half of her face because of her helmet. She said, nice helmet. And I jokingly said, how can you see? <laughs> I love that. Uh, and anyway, we, we, Got just sort of got chatting. I discovered they were Rob and I, they were all from Sussex. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the guys was Lara's ex boyfriend. They, they were just on holiday together. They were being in the yeah. process of up. I didn't know this. And I remember um, she, I think she said to me, um, we somehow were chatting and, and quite a long lift and second lift. And somehow the conversation got around to where, where does everybody work? And, and, um, she said to me, oh, you know, where do you work? And Rob said, oh, he, uh, he works from home. So she said, oh, what do you do? And Rob said, he's a gardener. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you can't get that much work if you're working from home as a gardener. Exactly. Um, and anyhow, then um, she, I, I said, no, I'm a writer. And she said, oh, anybody I, I might know. So I said my name. She said, oh, my God, I just, I just bought a book for my, um, for my dad for his birthday. And she said, my mother came to a talk of yours about a month ago, a charity talk. And she said, she came home and said, I didn't know you at that point at all. I didn't even really know who you are. And my dad liked you. And she said, oh, I've just given to this talk given by Peter James. He's brilliant. He could hold a room full of ladies enthralled. <laughs> and I, I was going, yada, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible. <laughs> So that was quite funny. And then we got to the top and I, I, I liked her, but honestly I hadn't seen, can see her face. And Rob yeah. said to them, do you, want to, do you know your way around? And they said, no, we don't. We haven't been there before. So he said, well, do you want to tag along with us? And I thought to him, I thought, oh, you idiot. They, they don't know what standard they are. Yeah. They are quite good skiers without going fast. Anyway, she was useless at that time. <laughs> She's a better skier than me now, but she was... And, but I waited for her, and I try, and her boyfriend was yelling at her. Her ex-boyfriend kept yelling at her, uh, and I skied since I was four. I know, what, you know skiing is my one sport. You know, yeah, I can do really well. And 
I gave her some tips, and, and, and he was getting quite annoyed with me for giving the tips. And, and, and she already started improving in, in, in half an hour. Anyhow, we, we skied with them a couple more times that, that week. And Rob said to me, he said, I think she really likes you. And anyway, we, we exchanged numbers at the end. Yeah. And then um, we didn't hear anything. And I still assumed that she was with her, her ex or they'd patch things up. And then I got a, 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 a Facebook post saying that she was doing the London Marathon and looking for sponsorship. So I, I sponsored There you go, it. there's my inning. There's my inning. And, and she messaged back saying, thanks so much. She said, we ought to have a skiing reunion. And I just said, oh, why not just you and I have a reunion? <laughs> what a line. Terrible line, terrible line. And so um, we did. And just got on absolutely brilliantly um she uh, some uh, conversation come out that i that i like martinis so she had actually got vodka or martini or green olives which i like and made made me martini and then a week later literally a week later i had a massive motor racing accident um mm-hmm. uh, brad's hatch that's may 2013 and i rolled the car four times and i was sort, oh of, gosh. sort of out of combat for a bit and I, my first thought was well oh, lara <laughs> Just started seeing, you know, just starting. Yeah. But um, it was, we and we got we we actually got together that October. Amazing. I mean, what a brilliant moment of fate and timing, and being in the right place at the right time. And you know, you say that you obviously couldn't see her face properly when you were in the um, the gondola, but as you said, you kind of got to know each other a little bit in the skiing. Did, was there something for you? Like when you both left that skiing holiday, did you kind of have that bit of a sparkle that you liked her? And do you think she had the same for you? Definitely, yeah, I, I, I really did. I, I thought that, that she was a bit special. Um, yeah. I did when I, even when I first saw the bottom half of her face, I thought she had a lovely mouth and she was, yeah. it was sort of, I just thought she's really, there's something about her. And I loved her energy. Mm-hmm. She's a really Amazing. incredibly positive person. And I think, I, I thought, yeah, I, you know, I really would like to see you again sometime. And I mean, the universe definitely was putting you together because as you say, you both left the ski trip. You didn't really speak to each other. You know, then you saw the Facebook post, then you messaged her. And it's all these small things that until you really unpick them, you don't realize that they're all little things that if they hadn't have happened, you maybe never would have seen her again. Even the line about, you know, going on a reunion, just you two. Sounds cheesy, but it worked and you're married now. So it it worked really well. But do you say that she kind of believes that you would have met somehow in a different way? What are your beliefs in that? So let's just say you hadn't have gotten that gondola or she hadn't have gotten your gondola that day or vice versa. You, you know, you switch the light switch off and it, you know, one second later, done your shoes up faster. What happens if you not have met? Do you believe you would have met her at another time in your life? I like to think we would um, because kind of, we were kind of really soulmates, but uh, and I, I think it's quite possible, but um, I don't know for sure, but I, I, she quite strongly believes that. And I think something about a, a attraction and a, and a visibility that, that, that maybe something else would have drawn us together. I mean, something really weird happened. Her, her father sadly died young, young in 2017. And when we were moving house, um, Lara was clearing out all sorts of junk and she came through this box of old receipts and was chucking them all out. And one just fell on the floor. She picked it up 
and the receipt for the book that she'd bought him just before we met. Wow. Maybe he was trying to like, I mean, this is a thing, as you say, is it the universe? Who is it? What is it? Because she'd had you seed planted in her brain like weeks, months before she'd actually met you. So she must have been like, this is crazy. How am I meeting this guy that I've only just heard about in the past few weeks? So it, I, I, these things blow my mind because I really believe that these things are meant to be. And also, do you yeah. believe in timing? Because, you know, you, we can meet, you know, you could have met her at another time or whatever, but you would have been in a different place personally. Do you believe the timing was right for both of you, even though you, you know, she was in a relationship, but it wasn't working, but maybe that's what made you shine even more. Like, do you believe the timing of the meeting was right? Totally. I mean, we were both in a relationship that wasn't working. Yeah. You know, a year earlier might have been wholly different. You know, a year later could have been completely different. You know, I, I think timing is so important. You know, I think, I think in life, you know, ability, luck and timing are kind of completely intertwined. Um, and I think that probably timing, I mean, you know, there's an expression, timing is everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really think there is a big element of truth in that. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've, I'm constantly fascinated by what are all the little things that connect people, that, you know, why do you know when the phone's going to ring it's going to be somebody you haven't spoken to for two years or yeah. there's, there's There is... I mean, there's an old, in fact, I've written about it in one of my Grace novels, that, that, that there is a theory that originally we learned, we used to communicate by telepathy only, mm-hmm. and we only learned to speak so that we could lie. <laughs> That's a very interesting way to put it. Totally. Because yeah, we can, we can get so much more through looks, through expression, through body language. It's such an interesting way to talk things. Oh, Peter, I've absolutely loved hearing all of your Slime Dolls moments. What brilliant moments of fate, timing, what if. And I just love hearing about how you became you and being a writer and so excited that you just keep bringing out novels every year and more than one novel a year and just can't wait to see kind of what you bring out next. And just thank you so much for chatting with me today. Oh, it's been an absolute delight, Jean. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Peter. Thank you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sliding Doors. If you've enjoyed our chat and found it inspiring, I would love it if you could rate, review, share and subscribe. Thank you so much. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.